Hi everybody, my name's Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello everybody. I'd like to start with a question today. I'd like to ask who When you think of the word intriguing, who is it that comes to your mind? We think of intriguing, we think of this idea like who is it that's intriguing? Maybe it's a person that we go like, you know, I know a little bit about this person, but I feel like there's layers of depth. I feel like there's more to them. I feel like, I feel like they're great at, they're just fantastic people. What is it? What is it when you think of the word intriguing? This morning at the 855 service, I had, uh, let's see, I had somebody say my husband, which is really cool. I can't vouch for that. I don't know him that well. Uh, I had somebody say Steph Curry, which I felt like, yeah, Steph Curry is intriguing. He makes those shots from half court, and you're like, oh my, how does he do that? Who is it for you? Like, name somebody. Anybody? Give me one. Kelly Clarkson. Kelly Clarkson is intriguing, Yes. She has a fantastic voice. What an amazing gift. John Who? He wrote NCIS. Okay, awesome. He captivates you in his writing. That's awesome. Okay, give me one more. All five-year-olds are intriguing. That's true. <laughs> there is deep mystery in five-year-olds. We could definitely say that. So in preparing for speaking about the Magi, I actually thought about this as well. And I thought about who has layers of depth that you want to know more about. And for me, I grew up in the 80s. There's going to be a couple references that come out in my talk today that are going to give that away. But for me, the first person I thought of was Chuck Norris. I thought, you know, Chuck Norris, he was really popular in the the 70s and 80s, and he came out as this black belt. He came out as this kung fu star. He actually is a black belt. He actually has some history in the military and whatnot, but he started this acting career. And uh, as he was, you know, in some action movies as I was a kid, later he would go into being Walker, Texas Ranger. And, uh, and then around 2005, there was this resurgence where Chuck Norris became more than an actor, more than an action star. He became a legend. Some of you guys might remember these jokes that came out about him because these jokes, they were, they were pretty absurd, but they would talk about Chuck Norris's skills as if Chuck Norris just had these layers of depth and interest and amazingness. I'm going to read a couple to you, okay? Remember, these are a little bit out there, but they are legendary. So it says, it takes Chuck Norris 20 minutes to watch 60 minutes. (laughs) Chuck Norris counted to infinity twice. (laughs) Chuck Norris can slam a revolving door. And when Chuck Norris jumps into a body of water, he doesn't get wet the water gets Chuck Norris. <laughs> so he's super magical, right? I mean, you, like similarly, around that time, Dos Equis, a beer company in Mexico, came out with an ad about the most interesting man in the world. And the most interesting man in the world had similar quotes about him. Where it says, when he drives the car off the lot, it goes up in value. <laughs> when a tree falls in the woods and no one is there, he hears it. He also teaches old dogs a variety of new tricks. 
He once found the fountain of youth, but didn't drink from it because he wasn't thirsty. He is the most interesting man in the world. Now, those are fun, but who is it that really that we think about, we think of intriguing? Those are some awesome examples, layers of mystery, people that have depth, people who have talents that are unexplainable, people we think about. I think I was thinking about this. I'm like, okay, if Gary were here, who would he say? I think Jesus would come to mind. I think C.S. Lewis would come to mind. We hear him quote C.S. Lewis oftentimes. For me, there's a guy that I read, and I could reread his books over and over, and I still get more layers of depth when I do. His name was Dallas Willard. Uh, to me, I was like, man, I'd vote for that guy for president. He's incredibly brilliant. So for me, you know, it's the same kind of thing, though, but we think about these people that are legendary. So just like we are today, thinking about this, like, afterglow of Christmas, where we are a few days removed from our Christmas holiday, not quite to New Year's yet, in this little span of time that we think about, um, we're going to be talking about the Magi. There are these people that arrived after Christmas. So, like Peter mentioned, we, we're going through these different uh, people that are within the Jesus story. And as we wrap up this series today, let me recap just a little bit. Our shepherds had this two-word theme of let's go. People that were, uh, had an experience with God and they became part of the story by venturing out. You had a, the story of Mary, who had this interaction also. This interruption in her life where the Lord made himself very known. And it was the story of the two words, I surrender. You have Joseph, who very little is written about, but you have this story of Joseph with the two-word theme of he did. He did what the Lord said. And today with wise men, we're going to be talking, uh, our two-word theme for the day is worship him. So who are the magi? This is what I want to find out. We, sometimes we build into this, uh, this idea of who these guys were, and we add our layers of legend kind of into it. What we do know is that the Magi came from the east. How far east? I'm not quite sure. When I was a kid, I remember having a manger set, and I remember like just as a kid, I'd, I'd lay on my stomach by the Christmas tree, and I'd play around with these little ceramic guys like they were action figures. And I had, I had three guys. I had, a, I had the three wise men. I had a, there was a white one, a black one, and a Chinese one. And, you know, the, they were kind of chipped up and old and whatnot. But I'd play with them and, like, I'd have a story time or whatever with these guys. But I thought it was interesting as I started to dig into the Magi is that there are some assumptions that we make. We assume that these were holy men. And some scholars would say, yeah, these guys were holy men. How else would they know that the king of the Jews was coming? But then there's some scholars that would say, no, maybe it was through some unholy means that they understood why something was coming, that they were reading the future, that they were able to see ahead of time. That maybe, maybe but these are, these are unspoken things that we can kind of look and we can conjecture and we can make ideas of who they were, trying to draw an image of who they are. Actually, around the 6th century, we started identifying them as kings. But if you look at the texts, Anything prior to the 6th century, they weren't called kings. And the NIV calls them magi. The ESV calls them wise men. But how many Christmas cards have you seen where they're wearing crowns? And on top of that, the magi also, it never says how many there were. There could have been a dozen. There could have been 20. There could have been four. And I thought about this and just thinking, you know, thinking about this. And I thought, what if there's four magi in heaven and one of, guys, one of the guys is just hates Christmas because he never makes it on your Christmas card. (laughs) 
The other three are all, yes, we're still in the story. But so there are some misconceptions that we know. But because they are legendary, they are these people that we know. And some, sometimes the story has a way of developing a little bit. It takes its own shape in a way. A legendary, kind of like Chuck Norris. Think about this. this. I did a little research on Chuck Norris. Deep thinking right here. So Chuck Norris, okay, tell me if any of you even knew this. His real name is not Chuck. Anyone? You got it? Could you call it? Like, do you know his name? It wasn't Charles. Okay, okay. His name is Carlos. It's Carlos Norris. He was named after a minister that his dad liked. Carlos Norris. So the next time you see Carlos on staff around town, around campus, be sure to call him Chuck. We'll get him really confused on where they come from. Anyway, so for most of us at our workplaces, there's some type of hierarchy or a chain of command. For a lot of us, we start in our company, we start and we work our way up. We come in maybe at ground floor, and maybe we get up to someday, you know, hey, we made assistant manager. Or, oh, wow, you're the manager now, or senior manager, vice president. Maybe for the really aspiring and the talented, we become the CEO, and we can, uh, we can become the top. So it's interesting when you are in a business or in a company or in the hierarchy of an organization, when I have a question, like when I first got hired here at PCC, when I had a question, I'd go to Carlos. Hey, Carlos, what would you do here? What do you think about this? And I could go to him. Well, what's interesting is when you make it to CEO, who do you go to? You don't really have a person ahead of you. You got a question and you're stumped? Well, in this story, when we talk about Magi, who were the Magi? If a king was stumped, if he was the top dog, if the king, we consider the king the top dog, the king could go to a magi. We learn in this story two things about magi. We learn that the magi could gain audience with kings. They go to Herod. They, he's, he listens to them. But also I want to share a story with you uh, in just a moment um, about an Old Testament story as well. Before I do, I want to talk to you just, uh, like I said, growing up in the 80s, I remember this, song, this, this movie called Coming to America. I don't know if any of you remember this movie. Okay, so in this story, the Prince of Zamunda, played by Eddie Murphy, he goes, he comes to America to find a queen. And so he goes to the most logical place to find a queen. He goes to Queens, New York. And it, when he does, he's like, do as the Queen's people do, and I'm going to get a job. And he goes and he starts working at a wannabe McDonald's. It's, a, it's a, a knockoff McDonald's called McDougal's. And he starts off at the bottom. His job is to work the mop. He is cleaning the floors. And in this movie, I remember this scene where Louis Anderson uh, comes up to him as a, as a guy who's been there a little while, as a veteran, and he's talking to the new guy. And he says... You know, right now you guys are on cleanup, and that's where I started. But right now, I'm washing lettuce. And pretty soon, I'll be on fries. And then the grill. Within two years, I'll make assistant manager. And that's when the big bucks start rolling in. So the Magi were at the top. They had made assistant manager and then some. They had the big bucks. They had the ear of royalty. They were able to gain the audience of royalty. 
Actually, the things that they bring to Jesus, they bring gold, they bring frankincense and myrrh. And all of these items were expensive. They were items of luxury. They were people that were comfortable. If you think about the Magi as people who had enough, they had plenty. They had enough to bring things of such expensive value to Jesus. You have to understand that these people weren't hurting. They, were, they had enough. They were, had plenty. So in the Old Testament, more than a thousand years before Jesus even came, there's this story of a king. His name was Balak. And he went to this guy who I consider kind of an archetype of who, what a Magi was like. He was this person, this holy person, some would call a holy person, and he was this person who, when the king was stumped, he could go to this guy and he could ask him, hey, I need your help. Well, in this story, King Balak, he actually is a little bit nervous. These 600,000 people that have been freed from Israel, or freed from Egypt by God, this nation of Israel, is moving across the land like a swarm of locusts. And they're following this pillar of cloud, and they're saying, you know, Lord, we believe you're in that cloud, and we're going to follow it to the promised land. And so sometimes that cloud would actually be over there, but there's this whole like, group of people in between. And so they would have to come to the people and be like, you know, we're, we're here, but we need to get there, which means we need to go through your yard. And it's kind of like when you were a kid, and you kicked the ball into the neighbor's yard, and you go and knock on his door, and you'd come to him and say, you know, can I get in your backyard? And as a kid, remember how awkward that was? You know, you'd be like, oh, I don't want to knock. You knock, you know, you tell your buddy. So you go and you knock on the door. Like, hey, is it cool if I, I got to get in over there? And so kings would say like, dude, you've got like 600,000 people. You will overtake me if you come through here. No, you cannot go through here. But Israel had such resolve that oftentimes it would turn into combat. They'd say, well, I tried the easy way, but we gotta, we're here, we got to get there, and they'd fight. And a lot of times there'd be people in those places that would say, you know, uh, there are people that flee, and they'd go to the next town, or they'd go to the next kingdom over, and they'd be like, you guys better be ready, because there's this group of 600,000 600, people, and they're not taking no for an answer, and they're coming your way. And so King Balak comes to Balaam. Balak, the king, comes to Balaam to say, help. I need you to curse those people. And sometime when you have time, you got to go back and look at this story. It's in the book of Numbers, and it's really good. But it's so cool that in this story, God doesn't curse his people. He blesses them. That even though Balak asks him to do things, it's so cool to see. Like, Balaam goes to curse them, and the things that come out of his mouth, it's like, it's like if somebody, you know, you know, kicked your dog or cut you off or something like that, you'd be like, dude, you're a you're being a whatever, and the thing that comes out instead is like, I love your sweater. <laughs> Duh! That's not what I meant to say, but, but that's kind of like how it is. That story is so cool. So go back and check it out when you get a chance. But somewhere in our own journeys, you and I grew in independence. I have two teenage daughters, so I'm experiencing their growth into independence. And a lot of us, for a lot of us, it was our teenage years. It was those years where we started thinking, well, you know what? I think I know better than my folks. I think, you know, I know me, and I know what's best for me, and because I know what's best for me, I'm going to, like, kick against the goads a bit, buck the system a little bit. And in some ways, it was kind of like maybe, 
like a caterpillar that goes into a, a, the chrysalis and it starts to grow its wings and it wants to elbow and push and move the boundaries out. And it knows, it says, I want to call the shots from here on out. So somewhere in our stories, we were like that. But the Magi were people. It's one of the things we know. It's like, were they, were they this? Were they that? Were they this? Well, we know they're people. And people grow up. And people are kids. And people are teenagers. And people grow up. And people get independent. And when you're a Magi and you're the top dog, you call a lot of the shots. And you start to feel like the one that knows best for you is you. And I think we can relate with that. But like Balaam, they were also a people that could see. And they saw a star, a hopeful sign that someone had entered the world. Somebody that was greater than them. Somebody that was worth a journey to leave my comfort, leave the known, to explore a story that was different, undefined, unknown. And yet it was to get a glimpse. Where is the king of the Jews? Where is the newborn king? that I might worship him. I love that the Magi in this story, you know, we picture them on camels. Maybe they had camels, maybe they didn't. But one of the images in the story is that they bowed down. And whether they were coming from up here or coming from right here, they got down there. And they put Jesus in a place of authority. They put Jesus in a place of, uh, they treated him like royalty. And they got down on their knees. Tim Keller, in his book, Hidden Christmas, he talks about King Herod. King Herod's response to Jesus' coming to a newborn king was uh, not so good. King Herod didn't, how do you feel if you're the king and someone says, hey, there's a new king. Isn't this great? It's like, no, like I'm the king. And so Herod's response was to extinguish, his goal was to extinguish the newborn king. But Tim Keller brings this out in a brilliant way. He says that within all of us is Herod, a little bit of Herod within. A little bit of that guy that calls the shots, that guy who is used to being the king of himself, the guy who has the knowledge of running his life the way that he knows best is challenged by a newborn king. So within us is all this little bit of Herod that wants to reject it. I've had seasons in my life where I've lived in two different ways. One way was to acknowledge that I was a good person. I was treating others with kindness and equity. And another way when I realized that all my giftings and all my goodness were not enough. And I recognized the need for a newborn king. I needed new management. And it wasn't until after I asked the new king to come in that I would recognize that the way I'd been doing things before wasn't great. And it's interesting to even think about because I didn't recognize it at the time. I couldn't see it. I thought of this analogy, this metaphor, and it just, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I felt like looking back at my life, I was like a, like a, like a blind man trying to build furniture from Ikea. It's like, can you imagine? Like, okay, you're like, okay, bag of bolts, wood, dowels, glue. You know, and you're building, and you think, like, I'm, do I'm doing a fantastic job. This is dynamite. This is going to be the best rocking chair ever. And someone comes up to you and goes, bro, sweet nightstand. You're like, oh, 
Like, that's not what I was... So I want to share a couple stories. And one of them, these are all stories. This isn't sweet baby Jesus at this point. This is grown-up Jesus. There's a story when Jesus comes into town and there's a blind man who recognizes him. He hears the commotion and he hears that Jesus is coming. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The beauty in the story that a blind man can recognize who Jesus is is confounding. That he says, I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. The idea that he adds that, those words, son of David, those three words are messianic prophecy. Prophecy that said that someone was coming and he had the ability to restore He had the ability to heal and fix and put things aright and make things okay. And in a world that he lived in of blindness and of Roman rule and of oppression, that he could recognize that Jesus was a means of restoration for him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what is it you want? And he says, I can't see. Jesus heals him. There's another story where Jesus goes through a storm. And the whole, all the disciples are freaking out. And it's the story where Jesus actually goes and he calms the storm with a word. He speaks to the wind and the waves and they listen to him and they're amazed. But on this journey, they're on their way to the other side of the sea. And when they get to the other side of the sea, you actually, there's like one goal, one mission. We're on this trek It's like a missionary trip, right? We're going like, yes, we're going to the other side of the sea. It's where the pagans are. And we're going to fix them up. We're going to give them some, Jesus is going to get them. You know, it's going to be great. And so they go over to this other side of the sea and they meet one guy. And he's demon possessed. And the guy's like, oh, you know, he's freaking out. And the disciples are like, wow. And here comes this demon possessed guy that no one can fix, that no one can restore that no one can save with a story that is radically thrashed. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus heals him. But the beauty of the story is this. It says in the story that the man can be found at Jesus' feet, that he was restored, that he was in his right mind, that he had came down low, that Jesus could be lifted up. And when Jesus gets about to leave, to head out from that place, to get back on the boat, his words are, take me with you. It never says that Jesus tells him where he's going. It never says that Jesus lays it out like, this is what you're in for, this is what the story's going to be like. It's just, take me with you. Because I want to be where you're at. That's worship. There's another story of a woman who actually is considered sinful by her whole community. And yet she is found at Jesus' feet, full of gratitude and weeping on them. No one had washed Jesus' feet, but she was there to get the grime and the dirt off with nothing to dry his feet but her hair. It's a message that says, I don't have a lot, but I'm grateful for you. 
What I have, you can have. What I have, I'm going to give. There's another story of Mary and Martha, where Martha is busy, and she's hustling, and she's working, and she's doing, and she's busy. And Mary is at Jesus' feet. And in that passage, Jesus says, it's not the one who's busy that's got it right. It's the one who's with me. And Mary hangs out at his feet and she hangs on every word. Saying, I know who you are. I know what a gift you are. My response is to be as close to you as I can. All people are drawn to Jesus. We've seen through these last four weeks that we have shepherds that come to a stable. They were like the cleanup guys at the burger joint. We also have magi, these people of intrigue, these people of legend, people that rubbed elbows with royalty, but they saw something too. And they were drawn to bow at Jesus' feet and to give him the best of what they had. I love, uh, I love that they bring different things, that they don't all bring the same thing. I saw, I saw, actually, it came through my Facebook feed this week. I thought it was pretty great. There was, um, there was this picture, and it said, the three wise men came, and they brought uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then the three wiser women came, and they brought diapers, a casserole, and some formula. <laughs> Many of you, uh, you know, you can relate. You're like, get me on that meal train. That is super helpful. But I love that the Magi brought different gifts. They brought what they had. So when I was about sixth grade was when the breakdancing craze kind of blew up. Do you guys remember breakdancing? So when I was about sixth grade, I remember like kids would bring their radio to school. And under the other arm, they'd have like a big piece of cardboard. Anyone? All right. So they bring this big piece of cardboard. Why? Because they were going to throw some moves at lunchtime. And they'd kick on the music, and they'd go, and they'd start circling the cardboard, and they'd get ready to throw down. And I promised my wife I wouldn't dance, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Maybe a little. So, uh, but these guys, they, they, were, they were like stoked because, you know, they'd be coming in their Adidas sweatsuit because you could spin better in that because it was like polyester and kind of slippery and you'd have it all planned out and everybody would circle up you know they'd gather around and they'd be like yeah that guy's jamming oh like that was so good and they'd be watching the moves and whatever and then even too like on tv you would see these competitions even sometimes where they'd be like these three on threes and like these guys with these teams would come and they'd have a break dance off i don't know what they call that or break dance challenge and they'd go and like they'd, they'd compete and there was always three, like with these three guys, there was like different gifts. Like one guy would come and he'd be like the footwork guy and he could slide across the floor and you wouldn't even see his feet like doing, like step, but he would like get from here to there with just like moving around. And there'd be another guy and he'd be like the guy that would do all the footwork and then he'd throw some flips. And there'd be another guy who would come and he'd spin and he'd throw these back spins and head spins and hand spins and you'd be like, wow, like these guys are amazing. But they all brought something interesting. They all brought something different. And I remember as a sixth grader in this coming around that circle and just watching these guys and they do the things that they've been practicing at home. And you'd just be like, wow, they're so good. I, go, I, wonder, I wonder if I went out there, what, could, what would I do? What, what could I bring if I went out there? 
And it's not confession time, but sometimes, you know, at home, you'd be like, you know, like, you know, trying it out, trying to, trying to do your, trying to do your thing, and, and thought like, oh, maybe I'll get brave enough to bust that out at school someday, you know. What's my gift? So maybe you're the guy that has the gold. And maybe you're the, maybe you make a mean casserole. Maybe you have breakdancing skills. And you can moonwalk like nobody's business. Well, they're all worship. Why does this matter? The birth of Jesus is an invitation to worship with all of who you are. In my story, I gave my life back to Jesus in 2005. It was a recommitment back to the Lord. I had gone through a season that was pretty tragic. And I needed to make a, a new contract. I needed new management. And so I remember giving my life back to the Lord and I remember telling him, you can take my story wherever you want to go. Wherever this goes, I'm, I'm in. I need you to fix me, and I need you to put me back together. I need the restoration that I know that only you can bring. And in, in turn, you can take what I am, you can take what I have, you can navigate the story any way you wish. You have my yes, no matter what. I'm foregoing my ability, my power to veto you in all ways that you might guide my story differently. And what I realized through that story, and I can say without a doubt, is that it doesn't really matter where you're going. It matters who you're with. The take me with you of the demon-possessed man. The man who recognized, I'm, or the woman who recognized, I know who you are and I'm grateful. The blind man who saw him from afar, I know you're the one that can fix me. That if I give my life and I offer you my story and put it in your hands, you'll take it to places I can't imagine. So worship is response. The Magi weren't perfect people, but they said yes to a journey. They recognized who Jesus was. They left the known and the comfortable in hopes that they would find him, that they might have an encounter with him. So worship is response. What flows out of us when we realize how much we are loved and how can we contain all the gratitude that leaks out? Our response is our worship. It's when we lower ourselves to foot level to acknowledge that one greater is here and he can have all of me. He can have my best. He can guide my story. So two years ago, God began to nudge me to leave the comfortable. I was working in the family business and I heard about this new multi-site pastor, gathering pastor role. And I thought, that sounds incredible. That sounds amazing. I love doing ministry, and you're saying that I could do this, and that would be my job? I thought, well, that's pretty awesome. That sounds really great. It also sounds totally impossible. And I'd have these wrestling matches with the Lord. I would, I'd be at, you know, at, at my fam, at, I worked in a family business, and I'd be at the shop, and I would, in my mind, I would, I would say, Lord, what about my mortgage? Like, what about my paycheck? What, what about, and I had all these whatabouts, and I'd bring them before him, and I could feel the response. Am I the God of that? And I'd remember that I put my life in his hands and I'd say, yes, you are. If this is where you're going, I need to know it. Lord, please, I don't have enough faith for this. Please give me the faith I need to do this. This is radical and different and whew, not what I was planning. But all of those answers were yes, 
And all of mine were yes. And here we are, two years later, we're leading a, a congregation in a school campus. PCC Hudson, I got to be the pastor of PCC Hudson. God is radically rewriting my story in a way that I hadn't planned for, that I wasn't, I wasn't aspiring to be a pastor someday. It came. And he said, this is where we're going. And I said, I want to be with you. So when we think of these two words, worship him, it doesn't say that the Magi came and they sang worship songs. It says that they came and they bowed. They recognized, they bowed, and they gave him their best. This is what worship is. We express it oftentimes in song and with our voices and how, we, how we're, our hearts leak when we're full of the love of Jesus. When we're full of allowing him to rewrite our stories. But our actions, our trusting in him, is our worship. It's 51 weeks until next Christmas, and I want to tell you what the angels did to everybody in this story. From the shepherds to Mary to Joseph, the angels came, and the first things they said, don't be afraid. Trust you can trust him to give him the whole thing. Magi weren't perfect, but they recognized that Jesus was worthy, that he could be trusted with their story, and that he was worth more than they could ever give. Would you pray with me? Worship team, you guys can come up. God, you are so good. Lord, you are miraculous in the ways that we uh, have these glimpses of you and we know it's you and we recognize that you are pulling us in new directions, that you are calling us towards you no matter where we're at in the journey, whether it's the start we haven't started or whether we're in the middle or at the end. But there's these supernatural ways that we know it's you. Lord, it had been 400 years of not a messenger, not a prophet, quiet, but a revelation of a new savior, a new king that would be born. And people knew it was you. Lord, I pray that everybody in this room would understand that there is a newborn king and they would allow a newborn king to grow inside their heart that their authority would be subsided, that they would find their place at the feet of you, lower than you, allowing you to run it all, to put their trust in a God who overwhelms them, the only one that can heal them, the one who brings restoration. And may it continue to leak out in the ways that they worship and the ways that they offer you their best. Thank you for coming. It is in your name, your mighty holy name, that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. 
Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.